Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The female pioneers in Hollywood also stand as some of the most iconic figures in American history. Their work, sacrifice, and perseverance helped pave the way for women not only in entertainment forums like television, radio, and film, but in fields throughout our culture. You know their names, but do you really know the far-reaching impact they had on the industry? In this episode of The Missing Chapter, we take a look at arguably the most famous and most influential actress ever, but through a different lens and expand on her already astonishing resume and incomparable career. Which famed shows and sitcoms would we never have had without her insight, wisdom, and foreshadowing? Thank you for joining us. You're sure to have a ball as we add yet another chapter to the history textbooks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. Phil, it's mid-August. It's warm. It's hot. We're still brewing some coffee. Today, we got uh, Utica Coffee Roasting Company's cannoli, which is a, a huge favorite of one of our own, uh, Blake Smith, who is recently retired. Hopefully, Blake, you're enjoying your retirement. Um, but yeah, cannoli is a great flavor, and we always uh, seem to enjoy it. Yeah, if we have a highlight reel of our favorite coffees over the past two seasons, I think cannolis maybe top three. Absolutely. Top four, Agreed. top five. For it's a sure. staple. Yeah. Missing Jack now, Phil, Listen, I'm going to go off topic just briefly. Are you a big iced coffee guy? Um, hit or miss. Depends okay. Depends on the iced coffee. I like my cold coffee brew? strong. Cold brew I like because it's a little frozen? stronger. I don't really dabble in frozen. Okay. I don't know. I was you just curious to... because, I mean, it, 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 nowadays you have so many different options. You might have to turn me on to the frozen. Yeah. Right? I think you'd like the frozen. All right. I'll, I'll check it out. Maybe next go. episode. All right. All right. Well, update, listeners, uh, once I get to the frozen. Um, so, Phil, Lucille Ball. Now, when you told me about the story, this was, gosh, months ago, maybe like mid-June, yeah. you told me about this story. This has been in the works for a while. It's been in the works. Um, there was, you told me just bits and pieces, little facets of her story, which I had no idea. And it's basically the introduction uh, to this episode. So I'm just as we always say, um, I'm going to be just as shocked as some of the listeners, because uh, I'm, really, I'm really eager to, to hear what, what you have for us today. You know, and Phil, it's one of those things history is amazing in so many different respects, but if you, you know, Lucia Ball, I mean, how much more is there to learn about her? That's true. Like what haven't you heard already? And I'm hoping I, I tell people today, uh, maybe a chapter that they're, they're not familiar with. I mean, that's the whole idea behind the, the podcast, but you know, isn't it amazing? Like you spend your entire life studying a specific event, a specific person, and you continually come across new information yeah. and you're like, wow, never knew that about that time period, that person. Yep. And it's just, and I don't know, it's amazing. And I don't know if it's a, it's a matter of, you know, more and more gets released, maybe some primary sources, uh, you know, letters, whatever. 
and you find out more about that person, their motives, um, it just, it, it, it amazes me. And that was one of the, the cases with Lucille Ball. I had mentioned this to my wife, Erin, one day, and she had just finished a book um, written in, um, uh, by Lucille Ball's daughter. Uh-huh. And I said, well, did they talk about this in the book? And she said, no. And she was even amazed. And she had just finished, literally just finished a book. Unbeknownst to? Unbeknownst to her. Yeah. Her. Oh, my gosh. See, and I had to go back because I remember, I remember, and I was super young when she mm-hmm. had passed. And I was like, man, what, what year was that? So I was thinking mid-90s. It was 1989. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I Which can't believe that. Is a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was five. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, all right. I'm, I'm super eager and I'm sure the listeners are too. So let's get right into it. Here we go. Lucille Ball, the undisputed queen of television in the 1950s and 60s, obviously earned a place in television history with her immortal sitcom, I Love Lucy, which ran from 1951 to 1957. Yep. So, you know, and again, by today's standard, six years, that's a good run. I know some shows nowadays, I mean, have been on far longer than six. And if you had quizzed me prior to doing the research, I would have guessed that I Love Lucy was around much longer than six years, six seasons. And that was when I when I Googled what time, what year she she passed. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that popped up. And I, I, it's funny, you had no idea I was doing this, but I was like, oh my gosh, that was only on. Yeah. Now they had sequels to that, which still you know, talk, and, called Lucy and stuff like that. But. You know, obviously with reruns, yeah. um, I, I think it's it, it certainly has kept her image and and the popularity of the show relevant yeah, and still going today. Yeah. The financial success of her blockbuster hit, co-starring then-husband Desi Arnaz, led the couple to branch out from acting when they purchased the former RKO Studios, which was adjacent to the Paramount lot in Los Angeles, California in 1957. So right at the end of I Love Lucy, you know, she's looking for that next chapter in her career. And right. She's going to stick with entertainment. She and Desi, you know, invest in a, in a studio. So before the days of Benefer and Brad Jelena, <laughs> Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz represented the first true power couple. And the reason I bring those two names up, they named their new production company Desi Lou Productions. Uh-huh. Desi Lou, combining the two names. Sure. So I just thought that was ironic because everybody, when you know, when Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt, or no, Jennifer Aniston and Ben Affleck got ben together Affleck. and they, they coined Benefer, it was like this creative thing. Yeah. It'd been done before, Phil. Yeah. And, and now we're seeing it on, on Despicable Me 3 there for those go. of you that are parents of young children. <laughs> so Desilu Productions, it quickly became one of the largest, most influential independent production companies in all of Hollywood. And Lucille Ball quickly earned the reputation of having an eye for shows and sitcoms that would have mass appeal amongst the audiences. Mm-hmm. Now, as a, as a sports guy, Phil, I kind of related to this as I was doing my research. Comparing athletes to when they retire from actually playing the sport to going on to becoming either a manager, a coach, someone in the front office, that popularity and that um, reputation doesn't necessarily translate into success in that ne- in that next step, really. That is 100% very, I, true. I mean, we'd have to do some research, but off the top of my head, I'd say it's quite rare, actually. Yeah, yeah. So here you have someone who was at the pinnacle of her acting career, delving into a production studio career and already people are saying, listen, she's, she's having the same success. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. And I, I think that's a good point because right now, Michael Jordan might be a, he's, he's an owner, right? But it's Steve Kerr who just won an NBA championship. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In, in the sixth man almost uh, in that, in that whole series, but that's a great point. And I, I, I'm curious to know how, how she did in that transition. Right. Well, and, and like I said, I, I think it goes back to people know her as a good actor. She's extremely versatile and she knows talent. So I think that's going to come into to be very important as she 
you know, gets into the second half of her career, so to speak. Desilu Productions was responsible for producing or filming series such as, ready? The Andy Griffith Show, what? The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, and The Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh my gosh. Those were all either produced or filmed um, on the set of Desilu Productions. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty good resume to have right there. In 1960, Lucy and Desi Arnaz divorced. And this very easily could have been the end of her role in the production company, the end of her career in this field of television. But instead, Lucille Ball bought her ex-husband shares of the company in 1962. And in the process, really became the most powerful woman in television, maybe even the entire country. When you think about how important television was you yeah. know, at this position, and now she's heading up a major production studio in Hollywood. The combination of her reputation, her resume as an actress, and now her position in producing shows set her apart from really any other woman in the entertainment industry and would so, you know, for quite some time. While many series were now being shot at Desilu, it was becoming more apparent that the studio was in dire need of original programming, hmm. original programming of its own. All right. This had been the untouchables. All right. But that series wrapped up and concluded in 1963. So they needed something more than we have a um, a show that wants to film at your studios. It's, hey, go out and realize some real talent and create it from start to finish at your studios. That was the next step. So Lucille Ball hired longtime TV executive Herbert Solo to help locate new projects for the studio. As a result, Solo brought in two notice, uh, notable proposals to Desi Liu in the year 1964. One was a show called Mission Impossible. What? So hit number one, exactly what they're looking for. The second was kind of a quirky sci-fi idea written and pitched by a man named Gene Roddenberry. Now at this point, mid-1960s, you know, it's important to point out that the science fiction genre was kind of relatively new. Certainly be considered up and coming by today's standards. You know, obviously now it's certainly found a niche in the entertainment industry has grown into arguably one of the most popular genres for television and screen. Ball, Solo, and Desilu Productions decide to shop the Roddenberry script idea to Lucy's longtime network ally, CBS. All right, this is where she'd done I Love Lucy, but they rejected it. Huh. Next, they took it to NBC, whose network schedule was completely devoid of anything remotely related to sci-fi. So it'd be something new. Right. NBC would be the next logical place to try and pitch this idea. Now, NBC, having faith and trusting in the keen eye of Lucille Ball, so she's putting that reputation on the line, decided to order a pilot. Ball was ecstatic, apparently seeing a very large appeal in the pitch and the script and was anxious to get started on production. This enthusiasm, however, was rather short-lived. It was, in fact, challenged again by our own company's board of directors when the price tag of this pilot was presented to the studio. The complicated and detailed props and scenery were not cheap, and much of it had to be built from scratch because, again, science, fi science fiction was kind of in its early stages, and there was very little for them to borrow or recycle, so to speak, from previous shows. Well, and just think about that. Any pioneer mm -hmm. of anything is essentially going to take the most criticism and, and make the most mistakes. Right. And there's, like you said, there's, there's nothing to draw from. They said, right. hey, go create. Exactly. So, like, what are you creating? How do you, like, it's just such a broad term. It would, it would be hard for me to say, 
uh, I'm going to take a step in this direction when, when they basically gave you free reign to talk about anything. Right. And you know, you, you have, listen, um, a plot that people aren't necessarily sold on, but they're believing in Lucille ball. Yeah. And now you're saying it's going to cost us how much money? Yeah. You better be sure about this because we really weren't sold initially, but you keep telling us this is going to work out. This is going to work out. So the board of directors, Lucille Ball's very own board of directors, reject the production costs, putting the entire show, the entire pilot, essentially in the scrap heap once again. And once again, it, it took the unwavering support of one Lucille Ball to override their veto and ensure that the pilot would be created. Now, interestingly enough, as enthusiastic and optimistic as she was about this show and its potential in the television market, there's some skepticism for those of, uh, who are actually close to her. And this has become very well documented, this revelation since, that Lucille might not actually have been completely 100% clear as to what the show was about <laughs> or what the storyline <laughs> even was. But regardless, because of her, because of her determination production on the pilot continued. After all of this, in early 1965, the episode for the potential series entitled The Cage mm -hmm. was previewed and shown to NBC and they rejected it. They wow. didn't like it. So after all of this, the wow. pilot is created. The board of directors, not thrilled, not impressed by it in the least. And again, it takes Lucille Ball again to convince them that they should order a second pilot and invest even more funds in this particular show. The confidence level over whether or not this made sense, financial sense or otherwise, was certainly wavering. Now, Ball agreed to help finance the second pilot on her own, with the caveat that the lead for the new show would also be recast. So she says, listen, I'm going to need a second pilot. Trust me. Trust me enough. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and help fund this second pilot. Yep. And one of the first things I'm going to do is we need a new star, a new lead. So we're going to recast that. Now, there was a young kind of brash new actor to Hollywood that she chose, handpicked to help fill this role, despite even more objections at this point from her board. Ball's pet project was completed and ready for its debut in the fall of 1966. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Phil. Now, twists and turns galore here. You left us with a little cliffhanger. Yeah. I have a couple of ideas conjuring up, but the first thing I want to mention is this. Mm -hmm. um, the resiliency of this woman is, is fantastic. And how many times do you have to get told no before you truly believe that, hey, whatever I, whatever I have planned, I have this vision. We've talked about this before, right. this resiliency, right, yeah. right where nothing's going to stop me from pursuing this. Um, how many times did Dyson fail? Uh, I had to Google this one because I've heard this story before. He made 5,100 prototypes before he got it right. There were 5,126 failures. Uh, I think about Edison. 
Edison a thousand unsuccessful attempts. And he said, I didn't fail a thousand times. I just, you know, found out how not to make a light bulb that many times. Right. And I, I start to think how many times did she get rejected before she pursued this? Because she just had this innate desire. I have to fulfill this. Now, the, the question I have for you, and it deals, and I think you'll, you'll go into this, of why she felt this, this un, I don't know, this huge desire to finish this product. But I, I think the biggest question I have for you is, is what I'm most curious about is, did you ever find out what she thought the show was about? All right. So listen, I, you brought up a good point because whenever you bring up how many rejections popular people have faced before they achieve their, their goal, I always think of JK Rowling too. Oh, that's And how many times, one. you know, Harry yeah. Potter was rejected by publishing companies. And then I, I think to myself, what, what drove her? It had to be more than just, Hey, this is going to be a great series. It has potential. I think it came down to, listen, I'm Lucille Ball and I'm in a position where I have my own company now. I'm not going to be overridden and, and yeah, questioned yeah. as many times. I, I think I think yeah. there was an ego thing for her, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the last question is a great one, and I was curious about that myself, so I made sure I, I researched it, and I have that for you at the oh, end. I can't so, wait. So, yeah. Okay. So if it, if it were not for Lucy, said former studio executive Ed Holly, when he told Desi Lu historian Coin Sanders, there would be no Star Trek today. Star Trek premiered on NBC in the fall of 1966 and actually won that time slot. So it it got the second pilot, it premiered, and eventually started showing at the time slot that it appeared on. So it beat out the other competition, you know, that that had been previously running on NBC. Part of the reason for for its initial success, you guessed it, critics found appeal in a young William Shatner's portrayal of Captain Kirk. So you think it's like all the pieces coming together. This is together, unbelievable, yeah. You know, and, and the decisions that she made really were groundbreaking decisions. And if you think about it, Phil, you take the sci-fi genre, which we said was kind of up and coming, was in a very early stages. Star Trek is what propelled it, Yeah, you know, into the popularity and, and spawned other things off of it. So, I mean, what she did for the show, undeniable. Now, what, what she did for the genre, really, you could say was groundbreaking absolutely. as well. What year about is this now? So, you're talking mid-1960s. All right, so perfect. 66 is when it premieres. It premieres yeah. in 66. That's what you said. All right. So, because in my head, I'm thinking the timing of this could be right. more impeccable, too, because you're talking space race. You're really starting to get into... Oh, that's true. You know what I mean? Absolutely. In the midst where, of the Cold War. Yeah. It's so, a great point. Yeah. Historical context. People, this is what's in their minds. Yes. Yeah. 100%. So I think that's that's maybe some of the appeal. And I don't know if that was on purpose on her end, but... I don't know. But either maybe way... Maybe she did. Yeah. It, either way, it's going to popularize and, and make space cool. Absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. Now, Star Star Trek had been on the air less than a year. When Lucille Ball decided to sell her studio to the new owner of Paramount Pictures, and it later became just Paramount Television, all right, because Paramount got so large. Mm -hmm. Ironically and fittingly, it's now part of CBS Television Studios and connected to the same network that gave Lucy her start. Uh Meanwhile, and this was the irony I was alluding to during the break. Meanwhile, even more irony to this story, the executive who bought Star Trek for NBC Okay, the guy who said Star Trek's going to premiere, we're going to give it a shot, was a guy by the name of Grant Tinker. He went on to found the next big husband-wife TV production company. All right, very similar to what Desi and Lucy did in their day. 
And his famous spouse, the one that he joined forces with, you know, in their own business was Mary Tyler Moore. See, come on. So it's, it's a, a a one, a complete 360 rather here. And that it's a very fitting way, you know, that he's the one who believed in Lucy and, you know, obviously uh, had the same relationship with his wife, a very famous actress. We always go back to this question, right? Why isn't this more well-known? I know. I know. And I'd never known that about Lucia Ball. My, my really understanding of her was almost entirely acting and then her as a, as a wife and a mother, but I never really knew the production aspect and you should, I mean, it's such a key role now. To get back to your last question, yes, and, and maybe the one that the, our listeners had as well. According to Salo, all right, in Mark Cushman's history, these are the voyages. Lucy initially thought Star Trek was about traveling USO performers. I had to look up huh. what USO were. Did you know? No, I, I well, no. Go ahead, you okay. tell me. I don't so she didn't think air. it was necessarily guys traveling through space, exploring space, the final frontier. Traveling USO performers. USO stood for United Service Organizations. These were groups that would travel around the country and around the world uh, entertaining, usually performing for groups, troops at wars and things like that. Oh, my God. So there was a a belief that she really was kind of confused. Regardless, she was behind it 100% was the driving force. Wow. I was going to say something military, but wow, that's amazing, man. Over the last two seasons, we've enjoyed bringing unknown stories from history to you every weekend. Now it's your turn to bring a story to us. Every town in every corner of the world has a story, and its history is our history. Tell us the story about your hometown and what makes it special or unique. We're calling it Hometown History. Who or what is your town known for? Tell us your hometown story either in an email or a voice message from our Facebook page. Phil and I will choose one hometown's history to research and profile in a full episode of Season 3 of The Missing Chapter. And we'll contact you to be a part of it. Every hometown has a story. The next chapter we add to the history textbooks could be yours. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.